welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up in this episode, we ask whether carbon labeling can become commonplace with Logitech. The reason we are doing this is uh, for sure we hope that consumers will look at this as a not a differentiator of our products, but a differentiator in their lives. As they go set out to buy, let's say, our mice or keyboards or webcams, uh, they're going to see what the carbon value is. We talk the future of office use with Workspace. When businesses are sort of getting back on their feet again, um, lots of them will be reviewing their space requirements. And I guess the flexible model just allows them to downsize in difficult times and then scale up again as the economy recovers. And we discuss the green recovery with the chief executive of global white goods firm Aselic. So we're looking at real structural uh, changes uh, to the economy where businesses have to adapt uh, dramatically. And not only that, we're seeing a huge distortion of uh, markets because of the amount of liquidity being pumped in by central banks around the world. So, hello and welcome back to the ED podcast. I'm ED's content editor, Matt Mace, here to give you a very brief introduction as we've got a lot to get through today. For part one of today's episode, you'll be hearing uh, two variants of our popular Susty Talk series that both uh, myself and our senior reporter, Sarah George, have conducted with sustainability professionals at leading firms following leading announcements from said firms. We'll then head into a very short break, after which we will give you an exclusive 30-minute interview with Chief Executive of uh, Aselec, Hakan uh, Bulgulu, who is on hand to discuss sustainable business leadership as a response to the coronavirus pandemic in an interview you absolutely do not want to miss. Uh, So that interview is to come, but without further delay, let's introduce the first two interviews as part of our Susty Talk series. Okay, so good morning, afternoon or evening, depending on when you are watching this and welcome along to the latest edition of our Susty Talk video series, um, the series of interviews designed to keep you guys, the sustainability community, um, connected during lockdown. Um, I'm really delighted to have a caller from, did you say you're in um, California? Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm uh, right now in California, based yes. out of here. Yeah. So we've got a transatlantic call today, and I have Prakash on the line, who is the head of operations and sustainability at Logitech, um, the big tech company, um, who have just this week announced a big plan to introduce carbon labelling for products. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Um, and as you were saying right there. Uh, we have an unusual setup here at Logitech in the sense that operations uh, reports into me and sustainability does as well. And that's for two reasons. Uh, one, I, I'm passionate about sustainability. And two, we believe that in order to actually impact sustainability in a positive way and leave a better footprint, uh, it needs to be woven into the fabric of our operations and hence uh, our unusual setup. No, we see that's definitely something that a lot more businesses are doing. If I had a pound for every time I've heard the words embedded sustainability or de-siloing sustainability or we don't want to be an add-on anymore since I started my job, I would have (laughs) quite a stack. (laughs) So it's promising to hear that. Yeah. So as a sort of design-led company, uh, we focus a lot on design. Last year, we actually pledged 
on the on uh, on uh, Paris Accord, the accelerated Paris Accord, to be on that glide path, uh, which is the 1.5 degree centigrade world, which effectively means that we would be uh, neutralizing our carbon as quickly as possible through design efforts on our products. Right. Uh, the second thing we pledged last year was uh, renewable electricity. Uh, to be 100% renewable electricity across all our operations, not just our buildings and offices and factories, but also the extended supply chain, if you will, uh, and being 100% renewable electricity by 2030. And the third thing we've done is a number of carbon neutralization efforts. Uh, we started with our factory. We have a fully owned factory uh, where we actually have completely neutralized the carbon from, um, from electricity and other um, improvements we've done to the factory. We've also taken our travel carbon neutral, uh, but more importantly, very excitingly, last year, uh, around December, we neutralized our entire gaming portfolio, uh, which is like the second largest business within Logitech. And, you know, as a company, we've focused for many years in sort of quietly doing what we need to do and then talking about it. And we are here today to talk about carbon labeling in sort of the spirit of actually uh, being the ones to actually raise awareness to this topic. And it's coming from a place of passion, if you will, uh, to allow consumers to make choices on carbon and uh, actually really understand carbon when they go out to buy and purchase. So, so what we are actually doing in, in our vernacular, we're, we're thinking carbon is the new calorie. It is sort of the, the equivalent of where calories have gone in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, we very much see carbon going in that direction where people internalize a part of their daily life, how much carbon they're actually consuming and what they could do to actually improve it. So as a company, we are basically pledging to, to label our carbon across our entire portfolio uh, on our packaging, on our, all our products, and also have you know information on our website for those interested in finding out more about it. And uh, what, what I'm sort of what we are doing here is to really invite not just uh, our consumers to see this, but also other companies to actually be join us in this sort of positive change uh, by providing full transparency on the products, right? And uh, one of the things we have done here and what we are about to do is essentially label carbon. And as you can see, it's, it's our top of the line G Pro wireless mice. And you'll find more information about this on our sustainability report that we published last year. Uh, and there's one more coming up uh, uh, end of this quarter. And essentially we talk about features of the product, you know, light speed, hero, power play, all, all those sorts of things, which are features of the product and differentiators that our product brings to market. And what we are setting out to do really here is to actually label carbon. There's mm -hmm. currently no sort of set way to to um, design a label or to calculate the carbon. So I, I, I wanted some more information about how you guys are doing that calculation and then relaying the information as well. Sure. So, so we designed this carbon label. It's a simple letter C. Um, and the idea of this is really that very quite simply, um, C stands for carbon with an arrow pointed down uh, showing the R intent to actually reduce the carbon. That particular product that I was showing has 8.2 kilograms of carbon equivalent, which is effectively what it would be if you jumped in, a, in your gasoline car and drove 20 miles. And the purpose of this is really for us to in, inform consumers. And the way we are computing this is we're looking at 
the, the total carbon life cycle. So everything starting from sourcing, manufacturing, distribution of the product uh, into consumer use and all the way to end of life. And we're taking that entire carbon chain and actually computing the total value. So when you see a number there, that's what that represents. And we're doing this in participation uh, with uh, a group called the IFU, Hamburg Group, which is a, it's a part of iPoint. And they're the guys who have the largest sort of carbon database of all kinds of uh, information on carbon componentry for technology companies. And as well as actually laddering that up with uh, DECRA, which is a certification body for automotives. So that's really what's behind these numbers. So it's validated. It's a part of an ISO standard. Um, we also use the carbon logo. We came up with it because uh, from what we can understand, we're the first guys to try to do something like this in technology companies. And uh, we wanted to actually design as a design led company. We wanted to design a logo. One of the cool things about this, Sarah, is that we, we plan to actually share all this information and IP uh, with whoever else wants to actually use the logo or the logo mark. Uh, or understand more from us on how we did the life cycle calculations. Uh, we invite others to join us. And really the reason this would be useful for others is uh, if others join us, right? Like especially consumers would like to be able to get to a point where they can actually make informed choices. So, so that's really the intent behind it. Um, super excited. Uh, we're gonna launch this pretty quickly here and then start working our way through this over the next uh, few years in terms of rolling it out across all our products. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, something that stuck out in what you said for me is you said, oh, carbon labeling like calorie labeling. Um, and two things that stand out to me about calorie labeling is that people use them as a differentiator. You'll see people in the supermarket with two kinds of cheese going, oh, I can compare um, this kind and this kind. Um, and then yeah. the other thing is that many governments have actually legislated to say, well, if you're a supermarket or a food producer, um, you have to have those labels on. So I guess my questions are um, whether you see this already being a differentiator for consumers and whether you see any legislation um, coming down the pipeline on carbon labeling. Yeah, so let me, let me take both of them. I guess uh, the reason we are doing this is uh, for sure, we hope that consumers will look at this as a, not a differentiator of our products, but a differentiator in their lives. As they go set out to buy, let's say our mice or keyboards or webcams, uh, they're gonna see what the carbon value is. And by us actually disclosing this, we're also making sure that we are on the hook, if you will, uh, in reducing the carbon uh, impact of our products over generations. Um, in terms of regulations, I. We are starting this, and I think if you look back 20, 30 years ago, calories were not regulated. They started out, and then eventually governments got in and got 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 into the act of actually regulating this. We certainly think this was going in that direction as well. Uh, we welcome that because I think some level of regulation with some standards would actually help uh, this cause. Um, but really, this is coming from sort of from a place where we think consumers need to need to know more. They need to be empowered. And when they look at a choice point of a product, they need to understand feature sets of those products along with the carbon footprint that that product leaves behind. Mm -hmm. And this would work uh, only if others actually joined us. And so, which is surely what we are hoping to do, be the first ones to start this and hopefully it creates a wave of others that actually join mm -hmm. uh, the carbon labeling effort. Mm -hmm. No, I know you mentioned about sharing the logo and insight, um, and I imagine yeah. there'll be a decent appetite for that because I've seen 
several companies, not in tech, obviously, um, but yeah. in other sectors, move in this direction recently. So we had Quorn, um, and then we had Allbirds, who are now working on Adidas on this decarbonisation project. Um, and then yeah. just this month, we've had Unilever um, yeah. say that by 2030, they're going to have a carbon footprint on all of their products. Um, so I wanted to ask sort of why is now such a, a moment for carbon labelling? Yeah, so a couple of things from I, I, I can't talk to others why they chose the timing, uh, but I, I'd say from a Logitech perspective, we've been sort of quietly chipping away at this idea of sustainability. You know, as you, as you heard from me earlier, we pledged uh, to be carbon neutral. We've neutralized a lot of carbon. We more importantly, we're putting in place a lot of programs from a designing for sustainability perspective because we believe that uh, in order to truly reduce your footprint, you need to take your product and really shape your product to be uh, something that leaves behind as minimal a footprint as possible. And so it's coming from that place and that's kind of been the uh, legacy of Logitech from as a design-led, product-led company. And when we kind of looked at this, uh, you know, this, quite honestly, this lifecycle analysis capability is something that took us a few years to develop as we looked at this, you know, this was information that we believe that consumers need to have as they make choices, right? And I think that's where it came from. And I would say in the last probably four or five months, if anything, um, it has actually accelerated the need to be sustainable, uh, especially coming out of the coronavirus crisis. Uh, a lot more people are now aware of what the world would look like if everything was to be actually somewhat less carbon intensive. And uh, it's quite amazing to see that in some ways. So, so th that's part of the reason. But really, for us, it's coming mainly from the fact that we were a design-led company. We were going in this direction anyway, and we said, you know, this is the time to do it. And uh, we really hope that others in the industry join us because uh, this is only going to be useful to the consumers if a lot more people join this idea. And like you said, there's quite a few people who have already started thinking along these lines. Uh, not in tech yet, uh, but I sure hope that starts uh, happening in tech as well. Mm -hmm. Great. And then just for people that aren't aware of it, I know you mentioned that the new initiative is part of a much wider package of sort of climate and decarbonisation activities. I know some cynical people who would probably say, oh, once you've calculated it, then then what? Um, what's next? So if you wouldn't mind giving an, an overview yeah. of some of the broader long term goals to finish up, I think that would be really helpful. Sure. Firstly, I want to go back to what I said, which is we're designing for sustainability in our products. So what does that mean? That means every time we make uh, mice, as an example, we're looking at the plastics. We're using, in, in a lot of our mice, we are using post-consumer recycled resin to reduce the total amount of carbon in the plastics. We're looking at the electronics to see how we could use lower power electronics, uh, more sustainable electronics. We are funding research efforts to actually try and find more sustainable materials uh, in electronics. We're reducing the size of packaging. Obviously that helps with um, shipping uh, as well in terms of shipping less volume. So, so those are efforts that are from a product perspective. And one of the things that we have done in the last, I would say year or so, is really woven sustainability into the fabric of our product development approach. Uh, typically product development approaches start with looking at the cost and the schedule and the experience you want to deliver from a product perspective. Uh, we've added a fourth one, which is sustainability. So every product effort in the future 
we're essentially looking at it with the sustainability lens uh, as we make trade-offs on feature sets and uh, elongating the amount of time consumers use it, the kind of footprint it would leave behind, kind of footprint it would require to bring it to market. So really the purpose of this carbon labeling is also internally for us to look at every product and say, okay, you know, we did this last year. As you look out next year, we want to reduce the total amount of carbon for that same product uh, when it comes out new next time as as you balance feature sets, uh, which is you know something that happens already in product development, we're going to balance the amount of carbon in our products in the future. So that's really behind this. And if you actually step back into why we pledge to be part of um, uh, the Paris Accord is to really drive that carbon reduction program. And on top of that, we've also neutralized carbon where we can uh, through climate impacted communities. And the idea there is that as we try to get on this glide path to reduce our footprint of our products. Um, whatever we can't take out right now, we're actually um, neutralizing through carbon sequestration uh, in reforesting efforts uh, around the world. And that's a bridge. And uh, we certainly hope that our products actually get to a point where we are generating far less carbon than they are today. I'm Edie's content editor, Matt Mace, and joining me, uh, we have provider of office and studio space, Workspaces, head of sustainability, Karen Jameson. Uh, Karen, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Whereabouts are you connecting from? Uh, yeah, so I'm working from home today in Bermondsey. Um, I was actually in the office yesterday, um, and I've been in a couple of times actually over the last few weeks, um, which has been really nice. Um, I'm lucky enough to be um, not too far away from our, our head office in Oval, so I can walk or cycle in. Um, and it feels pretty safe and, and low risk, especially with all the social distancing measures in place. So, yeah. Great stuff. And it's glad to, you know, interesting to hear that you're, you're, you're back into the office, at least for a, a, a bit now. Um, I suppose it's something you probably take for granted going into the office, certainly at the start of the year. And now it probably feels it probably feels quite refreshing. How um, how has lockdown been for for you and, and your kind of uh, your organisation in terms of sustainability and being able to kind of keep on with that work during what was you know highly stressful, uncertain, and and, and certainly kind of um, in in the broader scheme of things, quite quite a kind of depressing time. Yeah, so since we last spoke actually in November when you came over to mm. Kennington Park Cafe, um, I recruited a new person in our team, Stacey Ann. So that's been really nice having somebody else um, in the sustainability team. Um, and we've been having daily catch ups each morning, um, just to sort of check in and help keep focused, really. Um, and to be honest, it's been business as usual for us. Um, we've still had the annual report um, that we've been working on um, and also all of our greenhouse gas reporting, all of the ESG benchmarks and indices. Um, so it's been a busy time. Um, our IT team, they've been brilliant. Um, they've made it really easy for us just to adapt to um, remote working um, and they've We've been both set up with a, an extra monitor, which has been a dream with lots of spreadsheet work, which I'm sure lots of our sustainability consultants would agree with. Um, and and I've, I've found working from home quite a nice opportunity, actually, um, to do lots of reading and attend webinars um, and, and be able to sort of concentrate without without people interrupting you and things in the workplace. Um, and I've been trying to keep, keep active, really. So... Um, 
I've been going for a walk every morning and evening um, either side of work. Um, yeah, just as, as my sort of commute in really. Um, and, and I've been listening to podcasts, loads of podcasts. I've been trying to do 10K a day. That's been my goal. Um, uh, but I definitely do forget to take like regular breaks from the screen. And I think we forget that when we're in the office, you're talking to your colleagues and you're, you, you know, you're in face to face meetings. And so you have that natural break. Mm. Whereas at home, you know, you're constantly on on teams. Um, yeah, look, looking at a screen, really. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been um, from the kind of well-being aspect of it quite a quite a change even if it's, it's great that um as, as a kind of sustainability function your, your team's grown and you've been able to really kind of um go along with those key uh, reporting aspects certainly around esg um as well and yeah obviously last time we spoke which was november um there was that kind of net zero debate um and very much taken off. we've seen a lot of business announcements um kind of off the back of the the uk one and um there was a real focus on kind of greening of of offices and that's kind of been backed up this week with the um with the kind of recovery announcements the the kind of rebuilding package um more kind of at, at domestic um but a few public listed buildings um as well in terms of um your organization workspace considering that's that's where you work do you still see that sustainability is going to be the top kind of consideration um there or will this health and well-being aspect kind of overtake it or do they actually complement each other quite well uh they do actually go hand in hand um sometimes so definitely with like the sustainable transport view on things as well so um, we're encouraging lots of our customers and our employees to be cycling into work um, or, or walking into work now. Um, so, yeah, in some ways they're complementing each other. Um, but of course, I mean, with COVID-19, um, health and safety is going to be priority for lots of businesses, um, as it should be. Um, at Workspace, we've, we've introduced lots of uh, extensive measures across the portfolio. So we've got um, signage, sanitising stations um, and, and one-way systems in place. Um, but I, I don't think this needs to come to a, a, the cost of sustainability. It certainly hasn't for us. Um, during lockdown, I still presented to um, our board on ESG matters um, and, and it was still a key focus for us throughout our annual report, um, more than it ever has been. Um, and, and we're still looking to invest in um, on-site renewable energy, um, electric vehicle charging points. Um, and when I last spoke to you, actually, we, we just signed up to the BBP, the, the Better Building Partnership um, Climate Change Commitment. Um, so to deliver net zero properties by 2050. And then since then, we've developed our science-based targets, which are aligned to 1.5 degrees. Right. Um, so, yeah, and, and we've had quite a few ESG uh, questions from our investors recently following our full year results. Um, and our customers seem to be still asking lots of questions about sustainability. Um, so don't, I don't really think the momentum is slowing down at all. No, that's, um, that's great to hear then that it is still picking up and, and certainly from that investor aspect um, as well. That's something we on ED are going to be focusing quite uh quite heavily on in, in the coming months because um yeah they're you know the calls that we've had from that kind of community around uh, the green recovery have been kind of clear and, and definitely set in the chart for for businesses to to follow um 
I'd like to kind of future gaze, kind of look for the horizon a bit, and when we are kind of second guessing because we don't really know what's coming. But in terms of the future of of the office space, um, I'm interested to get your views on on how it looks. I'm I'm if I was going to kind of have a prediction, kind of ten years, five ten years down the line, it would be that actually um, the the traditional office space wouldn't be just a corporate rents or uh, kind of office space from a landlord just for their organisation, but it's more kind of flexible the workers can go into a, a kind of agnostic building where they're located so perhaps less commuting to London and just sell mm -hmm. down a bit like a library um, and, and how how you see that happening in the future yeah so I mean I might sound a bit biased here but we were definitely seeing that shift towards flexibility um, before the pandemic um, so and it's definitely looking like it it's becoming more attractive now. Um, lots of large companies um, have said that they don't need as much space anymore. Um, and so they could potentially become an, a new type of customer for us. Mm. Um, and also when when our, when businesses are sort of getting back up on their feet again, um, lots of them will be reviewing their space requirements. And I guess the flexible model just allows them to downsize in difficult times and then scale up again as the economy recovers. Um, or, or they might require more space um, for social distancing measures. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens, um, particularly in the in the longer term, I think. Yeah, no, yeah, I think that's definitely a, a few off but but what does I mean if that if that trend did kind of start to happen what does that do in terms of ownership of the sustainability um in terms of the people interacting with those office buildings and, and the kind of almost the 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 landlords like your, yourself in terms of I mean certainly the you know the stuff you mentioned you're working on on-site um renewables EV charge station that, that's clearly um uh, where where you're even lies but in terms of the kind of day-to-day -day, the the engagement behavior change stuff how how do you see that changing from a sustainability aspect yeah so i mean we, we try and give our customers um the tools that they need to reduce their own impact and so for example we've got um we've been rolling out smart submetering across the portfolio um which allows our customers to view and monitor their own consumption um for the space that they occupy um, we've also been looking at all of our cycling facilities at the minute to ensure that they're meeting demand, um, which was already a focus for us before the pandemic. Um, uh, for example, we've got one of our new developments in Hoxton, Brickfields. Um, we've got over 100 cycling spaces there. Um, so, um, and then as part of um, oh, as part of the BBP Own Occupier Forum. Um, that which was launched last month. Um, we'll be exploring how we can work together with our customers uh, to achieve net zero by 2050. So it definitely needs to be a collaboration between the landlords and the customers using that space. No, yeah, that sounds um, that sounds like a, a very succinct way of, of, of tackling that particular challenge. Um, and Karen, I suppose just to finish on that, it'd be great to get a uh, a look at I mean we, we've spoken about stuff that's a long way off um, in terms of the potential changes in terms of the very kind of short-term horizon for the end of 2020 what, what is it that you're kind of um, focusing on uh, in terms of sustainability at workspace yeah so for the rest of the year we're going to be delivering our revised doing the right thing strategy um, which covers our development practices our operational emissions um, and our social impact um, so as part of this we're going to be working um, 
working on our, our net zero carbon pathway, which we'll be publishing in December later this year. Um, and we're going to be completing our mapping exercise against the UN uh, SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so looking at our impact at a global level. Um, and then following on from our science-based target work, um, we'll be looking at our scope three emissions in more detail. So the vast majority of our scope three emissions are from embodied carbon associated with our redevelopment um, and refurbishment programmes. Um, and so we'll be carrying out embodied carbon assessments for, for any new projects. Um, and then another big part of our scope three emissions is our customers direct energy consumption um, that they procure themselves. Um, so we'll be collecting um, that data just to get a better idea on our whole building uh, performance. Um, and then finally, we're going to be reviewing our social impact and and looking into what we can do to help the local uh, or to help the local community in London recover from the pandemic. Um, for example, so this week and next week, we're taking part in this uh, virtual work experience program, um, which involves career workshops and and reviewing CVs. Um, so, I mean, it's been a really tough time for young people over this period. And so we hope we can make a, a positive impact there. OK, so not much then. I mean, for a team of two, that's that's an awful lot you've got on. Um, SDG mapping and net zero pathways alone sounds like that would be years of work. So uh, that's, yeah, that's that's going to keep you busy, um, certainly for, for the coming months. Um, Karen, thanks so much for, for being a great guest on, on this new series. Um, Clearly, there's a lot on your plate, uh, so I don't want to keep you uh, much longer. But yeah, appreciate you coming to, to chat to me uh, today for this series. So I hope you enjoyed those two Susty Talks. And thank you to both Logitech's Prakash Arunkadram and Karen Jameson from Workspace for taking time out their schedules to speak to us. For the second half of this episode, we're sticking with the green recovery theme in response to lockdown and the pandemic uh, with a great in-depth interview that will cover business responses to COVID-19, the role of carbon pricing in the green economy uh, and the importance of COP and so many more subjects. So joining me uh, for this discussion is household technologies company uh, Arcelik's chief executive Hakan uh, Bolguru. Hakan joined uh, the Turkish firm in 2010 and has been their CEO since 2015. Uh, he is a founding member of the Amstel Dialogue, um, which was established to accelerate innovation across Europe. Uh, it's also part of the European Committee for Home Appliances Manufacturers, so a lot of kind of sector collaboration uh, happening there as well. And is also a delegate of the High Level Commission on Carbon Pricing and Competitiveness, which operates within the World Bank. So a lot of hats uh, for, for Hakan there. Um, Hakan, thank you very much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. A very generous introduction there. Um, yeah, I do wear a lot of hats, but uh, my passion remains uh, absolutely sustainability. So I'm very glad to be talking to you. Great. And we've we've spoken to a lot of sustainability professionals, the kind of CSOs of companies during lockdown to get their thoughts on how they're working and how they're keeping sustainability going as kind of lockdown came in and as it eased and as just the kind of economic crisis of COVID hit. Um, and a lot of them were kind of outlining how they kept, you know, sustainability within the boardroom and very much kind of high level uh, during during this kind of disruptive period. Uh, from a chief executive uh, Chief Executive's perspective, how, how important has sustainability been for the company during this kind of 
time of crisis, really. I guess I have to respect uh, uh, my peer group's opinion that they kept it live and it was very much a part of the boardroom discussion. But um, excuse me if I'm a bit cynical here, I don't really believe that. I mean, it was all hands on board uh, the first four months of this year, really trying to deal with uh, what COVID uh, has done in terms of wreaking havoc, not just in our business, day-to-day business, but also I truly believe that uh, there have been many shifts in what the consumers are demanding from us and supply chains. Uh, I mean, definitely retail will never be the same. So we're looking at real structural uh, changes uh, to the economy where businesses have to adapt uh, dramatically. And not only that, we're seeing a huge distortion of uh, markets because of the amount of liquidity being pumped in by central banks around the world. Now, you have to remember that uh, countries like Germany and the US, maybe you can even count the UK, uh, got caught in this with a, uh, uh, an economy that was, uh, has been strong for a very long time, growing, creating jobs. So they, they may be able to print money and uh, you know, flood the markets with uh, cash. But if you look at emerging markets, that's not the case at all. Uh, in those markets, you will see huge uh, difficulty in foreign currency, you will have current account deficits, big barriers to entry in terms of trade walls. Why am I talking about all of this? Uh, in the Western world, uh, it was easier maybe and, and, and will continue to be easier to keep sustainability at the forefront uh, during the time of a crisis like this. But if you're looking at emerging markets, I'm afraid uh, it has taken a back seat and, uh, and that has huge implications for the world going forward. When it comes to Archie and our brands, uh, we uh, kind of have made sustainability our differentiating factor and a way of life. So we see it as a business model and we actually use it to empower our teams. Uh, you know, we're, we have a very engaged workforce and I, I can count sustainability as the only reason behind that. So we can't really put it in the backseat. Uh, but I have to say it's been very challenging through this crisis. No, I think um, I think that's a very fair assessment, and it's it's quite easy to to look at this through the lens of national issues because each country and each nation has responded to it so differently. And it's it's a bit like the climate crisis. You know, it's easy to think about close to home what's happening, but the more severe impacts tend to be happening further um, afield. So I, I completely um, appreciate that. And and on that kind of more kind of broader global look, um, obviously you mentioned. You, the hat you wear within the World Bank on, on carbon pricing and obviously the, the kind of sectoral boards that you sit on as well. Have, have those conversations been able to continue during this time or has it kind of been, as you mentioned, kind of all hands on deck on kind of keeping business productivity high during this time? Uh, I'm being completely honest with you. I think uh, there have been two uh, things on the forefront of uh, not only chief executive, but boards, NGOs, uh, everybody really uh, first was focused on their own and their families and employees' health. And second is business continuity. Unfortunately, sustainability took a backseat. Everybody says it's not true, uh, but my experiences has have been such. And, uh, you know, we continue to look for ways uh, of actually using COVID uh, to enhance uh, people's engagement relating to the coming climate crisis, the plastic issue, anything around sustainability. Uh, if anything, there's been an small benefit, I think, uh, in terms of uh, people's awareness around the coming climate crisis. Because when people are in a state of difficulty 
um, and moments of panic, which we went through in the past four months, you do start thinking more about what could cause a repeat of this or what could be worse than this. And you kind of, for a while, are more receptive to that kind of thinking. I think there's been some progress there, but not much. Okay, now that's, um, thank you for the honesty there. I think, um, yeah, the sustainability professionals I spoke to are eternal optimists and they probably, the, their responses come through in that way. Um, I appreciate it's the time for pragmatism on that. Um, I want to talk about your company's, your own sustainability targets for our, for our listeners that perhaps may not be aware. So obviously flicking through the sustainability report, there's some kind of standout ambitions there, the 100% green electricity in global production plants target, um, reducing energy consumption per product by 45%, which it looks like you're on course to reach by the end of this year. Um, I think you're on about 43% as of the 2019 report. Uh, increasing recycled plastic content in products to 40%, reduced water withdrawal per product by 52%, which has already been achieved. Uh, increasing waste recycling to 98%, which has also been achieved. And the, probably the headline on that, committed to carbon neutrality across the Turkish operations by 20. 25 um, how you know especially on the carbon neutrality goal that's such a big kind of litmus test for a business that wants to consider itself as a sustainability leader the carbon neutrality net zero agenda has really risen up how, how is progress heading against that goal right now um, i have to rewind a little bit uh, matt to actually give you uh, more color on on how we've how we've made so much progress in terms of sustainability all of the targets you've mentioned uh, first of all, are very real for us, and there's a lot of work behind them. Uh, we have a clear path to making them happen. Now, uh, if I rewind again to the beginning, when we actually embarked on this journey, uh, we were not even on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. But today, we lead the industry. Um, and it's unusual for an emerging markets company like Archidic to lead something which traditionally has been seen as a, a Western world, higher brow, um, you know, we care about the environment, therefore we do these things and, you know, we need to be uh, credited for that. We actually do this because we believe, A, it differentiates us. And uh, the last Nielsen consumer study I saw uh, of 62,000 consumers, 70% responded that they would be willing to pay more for companies and brands that were doing the right thing by the environment. I think we're going through a, a, a phase in human consciousness where people are just much more aware of what we're doing to the planet and that this is not sustainable. And also, uh, you know, with Friday strikes, et cetera, we're, we're seeing more and more with Greta and her very vocal and visible uh, uh, defense of, of the environment. We're seeing that we only have one planet, right? Uh, that's why I never use the word climate change, for example, because climate change indicates you can adapt to it, but actually we can't. It's not like COVID, where COVID you have uh, medication, treatment options, you know, uh, we produce ventilators, for example, as a remedy or a vaccine will be ready, hopefully in 12 to 24 months. But eventually humanity will get over this. The climate crisis is something that is much more long term, much more final. And unless we do something for the next 10 years every day consistently, it's something that's going to hit us. And if I compare the two, uh, COVID is like a bow and arrow, whereas uh, the climate crisis is like a nuclear bomb. I mean, it's absolutely every single human's responsibility to do what they can by changing their consumption habits, by uh, being much more aware of you know, what they eat, how they travel, uh, what they consume. Now, when it comes to business leaders uh, and the platforms that we manage, our responsibility is a lot larger than the consumer. 
we need to make sure that we're absolutely doing everything right in terms of resource consumption, recyclability, durability, um, and uh, uh, most importantly, of course, carbon, uh, which you mentioned. Uh, I, unfortunately, uh, again here, I'm a little bit uh, of a pessimist. I mean, I do believe in the good side of human beings and the responsible side of business leaders, but I don't see any way to get to our targets unless there's a carbon pricing mechanism. So we need a, we need a carrot and stick mechanism in place, which is meaningful uh, for us to be able to get to net zero emissions, which is the only way we're going to save ourselves. And um, uh, now I, we have taken the approach at Archidi that we will do everything voluntarily that we can. The consumers will recognize this, therefore reward us with market share. Uh, and uh, obviously that is beneficial for the PNL and balance sheet, which means that ultimately we get rewarded for behaving in the right way and other companies that see this will also follow in our footpath. But the real benefit uh, from this type of behavior uh, is that our employees are more engaged than they have ever been. You know, they believe that they're doing something for the greater good and that they're part of uh, something which is bigger than themselves. And I mean, the impact of that on the overall uh, operations of the company is just huge. So um, in a way, by doing the right thing, it's very self-serving uh, and it also serves the shareholders. And the shareholders are, are actually seeing this. Uh, another, uh, you know, all the targets you mentioned, another point I want to make about those things, uh, we started very small. And I guess if there's any message I can give to other companies or uh, business leaders out there, if you start with small things which actually end up with a net benefit, um, I'll give you an example. We started using recycled PET bottles in the tubs of our washing machines, water bottles, right? Millions of them are discovered everywhere. In each washing machine tub, we're using 60 or 70 of these bottles. The net effect is the raw material cost of those tubs goes down. So there's a there's a PNL benefit that's immediate by using these. But also when the consumer sees the product in the store with all of the competitors' products there, they actually choose this product because they want to buy something that has recycled pet bottles that normally wash up on a beach somewhere inside the washing machine tub. Now that kind of benefit once becomes uh, uh, once the whole uh, sort of ecosystem of the company becomes aware of those benefits, they start coming up with projects on their own. And the accumulative uh, net benefit is just huge. And that's what actually brought us to lead the Dow Jones Sustainability Index today. Sorry, it was a long answer, but I just wanted to run through a bunch of things. No, no, it's a great answer. It's given me a lot of follow-up questions. Um, and the first one I think I'll go for is, is and it's, I mean, it's quite a big open question, um, but in terms of that transformation from a company that wasn't on the Dow Jones indices to, to one that's now leading the sector, what's what's been key to that transformation in, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, what I mentioned earlier, clearly uh, the engagement of employees and starting with those small projects which encouraged our engineers to come up with their own projects. And once you start adding them on top of each other, that really scales and changes the way the company behaves. Um, and I've seen this transformation happen very fast, by the way. This is not a 10-year transformation. This is two or three years. Uh, and it's, it's, you can do this in any business, any sector. It's just a different way of looking at things. Great. And... I want to focus on the consumer aspects of it, which you also touched on. I was reading a blog post uh, that was um, on the homepage of, of your website actually earlier, which is um, good to see, which is all about the climate crisis. Um, so to take a quote from it, um, 
take something as simple as the washing machine. We can calculate that the annual electricity required to power them exceeds 83 billion kilowatts each year. If we found a simple and innovative ways to help consumers wash at 30 uh, rather than 40 with a better cleaning performance, electricity consumption could be reduced by an average of 40%, which is, you know, a, a staggering that's such a, I'd say simple, it's much more complex from the manufacturing side, but from a user perspective, switching to 30 to 40 can have that um, effect. And I think the average household is probably aware of the energy saving aspect of, of switching down to 30 to 40. There's been a lot of, um, certainly in the UK, a lot of kind of almost advertising about that benefit. But we're seeing a real maturity in the conversation um, with the public around the climate crisis, as you've mentioned. So in terms of a manufacturer or a producer's responsibility to educate users, has has that matured now? I mean, we, we've had discussions on this podcast about carbon labelling and obviously um, somehow a lot of household appliances have the energy efficiency ratings on it. Where, where are we at in that conversation in terms of how easily a, a company like yours can educate the consumers on on the steps that they can take? Uh, this is an amazing question, by the way. I'm just thinking about how daring I should be with my answer, but um, I'll be, again, uh, truthful and direct. Uh, the consumer will always respond to savings in their pocket, right? So this is the most important aspect of it. It's the same with companies. Like the example I used earlier, the reason now recycled PET uh, bottles are in our washing machine tubs is because it saves us money in the production process. And the engineers immediately embrace that. It's the same thing with the consumers. I'll use South Africa as an example because South Africa is a country with rolling blackouts, huge deficiency in its energy infrastructure, and it's been neglected for many, many years. When we uh, bought DeFi in South Africa in 2011, DeFi roughly has 40% market share in South Africa. So, you know, very dominant in the appliance sector. The average refrigerator or all refrigerators were de-energy uh, level. Um, and uh, we voluntarily, in the absence of regulation, voluntarily uh, stopped producing refrigerators uh, that were that inefficient and voluntarily switched to A-level or above, which means that roughly uh, the new fridges we were selling were consuming 50% less energy than the old ones. If you think that 40% of the household electricity consumption comes from appliances, and a large chunk of that is a refrigerator, and now add that we have 40% market share in the country, over the past five years, by switching out the old fridges with the new energy level ones, voluntarily, uh, we've saved uh, South Africa the equivalent investment of two, coal, two 500 megawatt coal-fired uh, energy plants. It's huge. So the state saves, um, uh, the state saves the investment needed in the infrastructure, the environment is spared the uh, carbon emissions and the consumer has a much lower energy bill. So this is a win-win for everybody. The only thing that we couldn't foresee before this is as it brings a net cost into the product, uh, you know, you would immediately think that this would result in lower market share. Well, it doesn't because if you can show the consumer the benefit, exactly the education you were talking about, they really respond. And in my view uh, the best carrot you can give a consumer is a saving uh, is a saving carrot uh, i think this is what we need to do in terms of uh, consumption of resources water energy is the same thing there is also the role of regulators and governments i think regulation needs to be tougher in many places and the eu green deal is actually bringing this about there's a new energy label regulation coming into effect this uh, summer in fact in europe which will uh, put much more stringent requirements on manufacturers of appliances. 
I think that I, that type of regulation should be encouraged. And uh, I know all of my colleagues in, in my industry are not going to like me for saying this, but uh, as you know, not all regulation is good. But I believe any regulation to tighten energy or resource consumption is definitely a good. And I think the technology is there for companies to adapt quickly. And I also think consumers actually want this. So, uh, and they're willing to pay an added cost for that. No, that's, um, that's a very good point. And I wanted to, um, I suppose this is a kind of regulation question on that. Obviously, you mentioned carbon pricing as, as key. And we've seen a lot of this kind of green recovery narrative on on ED. We've, we've had so many reports come through about the needs to deliver a global green recovery, let alone not just in the UK, and about how to, you know, ensure that fossil fuels aren't locked in. It, it seems, um, and granted I'm coming from a level of, of relatively limited understanding on, on carbon pricing, but it seems that carbon pricing just seems like a policy lever that will effectively lock out fossil fuels for, for the long run, which is what it requires. So are you, are you surprised that there's perhaps not as much dialogue happening around, around that? Or? Um, I'm not surprised because I'm involved. Uh, I have been involved in it for a long time. Unfortunately, if the world were becoming more multilateral and global in nature, uh, so if globalization was still in full steam, I think we would get to results much quicker because it would have been a more level playing field. Uh, now, in a polarizing world with uh, more geopolitical tensions everywhere, I mean, I'm not talking about just China, US, I mean, even Europe, China, uh, you know, pretty much everywhere you look today, uh, there are tensions. And because of the coming crash, economic crash, because of the impact of COVID, the worst since the Great Depression, by the way, most countries are really trying to focus on, on job creation, you know, basically salvaging their own economies. This takes away any kind of multilateral possibility of coming to a global agreement on carbon pricing. And what happens is uh, if you have uh, the European bloc, for example, which is coming through with the Green Deal and is, is actually going to use this uh, to accelerate the transformation of its economy, create jobs, innovation. You know, it's a very smart thing, actually, because green innovation is something, it's like the new gold rush. And Europe is with this, uh, with, by funding this, uh, with a trillion euros, is actually opening the door to lead this globally. The problem will be countries outside the EU will not actually have invested the same amounts um, in any kind of carbon mechanism. And this can create some border tax issues, carbon tax issues, which will actually penalize emerging markets. I think it's very important that whatever systems come into place, it's not a patchwork of systems and that there is a global agreement. But unfortunately, I see this uh, uh, very difficult to achieve uh, in the near term. I mean, I am an optimist in nature. I know I don't sound like one at the moment, but I really am an optimist in nature. And the only thing I think that can change this, um, these fears of mine is as uh, the effects of global uh, warming uh, become more evident as they are now. I mean, we had a tornado in Istanbul yesterday, a full on tornado. I'll send you a video of it. You won't believe it. Now, I've never seen anything like that in my lifetime. Uh, May was the warmest month on record in most countries around the world. You know, 2020, I'm willing to wager any bet you like, will be one of the top five, if not the uh, warmest on record. And by the way, the five warmest on record are out of the last six years. So the trend is very, very clear. Um, you don't need to be a statistician to know that this is happening. But I think the impact on people's daily lives will exponentially grow with time. And I think people will really react to that and start doing the right thing. So that's my only hope. 
as things get worse, uh, countries will wake up, governments will wake up, and they will be willing to come to some kind of multilateral agreement on carbon pricing. And then that actually sets the stage to get to a net carbon zero future for humanity. And how, how far off do you think we're off that? I mean, obviously, COP26 has been delayed until November next year, and it was seen as such a crucial climate summit to, to kind of get a more ambitious global deal on, on the table. And there's been a lot of talk about, it's obviously disappointing it's been delayed because of COVID, but actually it gives, it gives I mean, there's a lot of interest in plates in terms of the US elections. The UK doesn't really have its own house in order with its own net zero roadmap and, and NDC. And there's been a lot more vocality from developing nations through these kind of coalitions to say, actually, yeah, you need to make we need to make sure that we don't feel the brunt of, of the climate crisis. So is, is that a bit too soon or, or is that the time where actually a, a discussion about a global carbon price could could take place? Um, I'll step back to our uh, discussion when we actually first started talking today. Essentially, if I had thought that we were through COVID at the moment, maybe it wouldn't have been that ambitious. But unfortunately, I think we're going through the first stages. And uh, the second stages being the economic uh, implications of uh, all of the lockdowns becoming more evident every day, the effects of this liquidity, uh, abundant liquidity, will also start wearing off uh, because, you know, jobs everywhere are threatened, uh, consumption is changing. And also on top of that, uh, I think the threats of the second wave are very, very real. So uh, if you look at Brazil today, I think you can get a glimpse of what may happen uh, in the other hemisphere uh, when fall comes around. In the face of all of that, I don't see uh, many governments prioritizing uh, and getting the work, necessary work, footwork done before uh, COP26 happens next November. So I'm not very hopeful. No, no, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's come completely fair um, enough. And just to finish on then, we, we you know, we're over halfway through 2020, which feels weird to say when, you know, lockdowns probably locked us indoors for, for half of that time as well. What, what are your kind of main focus for, for the rest of the year in terms of sustainability, Arshlet? Um, I mean, we have now uh, pivoted a little bit to focus on a product range which is COVID ready. Essentially, you know, people's consumption habits have changed now. People have been interacting with their appliance a lot more. Hygiene, food security are really critical. Uh, so we're implementing a lot of changes to our product ranges which reflect this change in consumer demand. That's one thing. Uh, but another thing is that there's a great uh, drive towards value as job security and disposable income, temporarily disposable income is high because of all of the liquidity governments are putting in the market, but that's not sustainable. I think people with their job security in question uh, will be spending less and they will spend, be spending differently. So what we're trying to do is make sure that we're bringing in a lot more efficiency into our product, uh, into our production systems, really reducing complexity and uh, and making sure that none of these sustainability goals that we have are being um, eroded. Uh, so uh, I think the second half of the year, uh, we will continue again uh, to really focus on resource efficiency. You will see products which consume less energy, less water. Uh, and this is in line with the incoming regulation in Europe around new energy labeling. Uh, I'm very happy about that. I think that will do a lot. And uh, another thing we think of accelerating is uh, we're offering, as people have been interacting with their appliances a lot more, 
They want larger refrigerators, for example, because they've been at home much longer, right? And they don't want to go out shop. So uh, we start, uh, we're accelerating campaigns where we take the old product from our consumer and give the new one with a discount. By taking the old product, brand agnostic, by the way, it doesn't matter what brand it is, uh, we are now recycling those products. And uh, you know, we built, we couldn't find anyone to recycle them. So we built this big Mad Max style facility uh, where we've now recycled 1.2 million units. And we actually use all of the materials that come from that in new product. That's the type of program we will accelerate because now people are willing to change their appliances a lot more. And unfortunately, in many countries, the old ones are going to landfills. Uh, but what we're, what we're doing is we're actually recycling them. That type of product is very, that type of uh, promotion and activity uh, both serves the sustainability goals and is very, uh, very appropriate for uh, COVID times and changing uh, consumption patterns. So we will continue to stay focused. I guess that's my, uh, that's my short answer. Great to hear, yeah. and as someone who's um, in the process of moving house, the, the, the recycling of appliances is yeah something that's been um, on my mind. So glad to see that there are initiatives out there that are really uh, championing that too. Um, I can um, um, appreciate you're probably extremely busy with everything you just listed off yeah. there, so I won't keep any more of your time. But it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the on the podcast, and hopefully we'll get to speak again soon as well. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it, and I look forward to speak to you again soon. Bye. So that's all we've got time for in what has been this action pack episode. Do look out for future episodes of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. And in the meantime, you can subscribe and download um, to our, all of our episodes, our entire backlog, via iTunes and Spotify. Or check us out on ed.net for all of them. Just search Sustainable Business Covered and we will pop up. Um, until next time, though, goodbye. Goodbye.